This is Shack Talk, presented by Eskimo Ice Fishing Gear and hosted by Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter. Turn up your speakers, grab your gear, and hit the ice with us as we talk ice fishing. Come on in, grab a bucket, and have a seat. We're talking ice fishing. We're here with the Shack Talk podcast. Uh, myself, Anthony Kleinwachter, and Kyle Agri. We're here to talk ice fishing. Kyle, another fun podcast here. We've got a few segments lined up for the listeners. Uh, we've been out on the ice lately. You know, I have been out on the ice, although travel on the ice is not exactly an easy thing right now, uh, as you might be well aware. Um, and I know we have listeners all across North America uh, through many different areas where people fish on the ice. But here in the Midwest, in the Dakotas and Minnesota right now, We've gotten so much snow that uh, the the ice that was there was real good to start with, but that's that extra weight of the snow was really pushed down on that that ice sheet. And you know the the lake I was on here this weekend, um, slush water, you could not have gotten anywhere on that lake with wheels. You had to have tracks, and at that you you better know how to use them, or or you're going to get stuck real quick. Yeah, there's a lot of difficult conditions out there. We got some cold weather coming, so I'm really hopeful that that'll heal some things up and allow a few more people to get on the ice and and have some fun. Nothing like a couple of days at 20 below zero to get things shaped up. Hopefully that's the cure. But as we jump into our first segment here, we're going to be talking about some fish recipes and a process for preserving your fish that you know is a little bit different than the traditional fish fry that we would maybe normally have um, after a day out on the ice and we're going to specifically be talking about pickling fish and we decided to bring in a, a guest who's got a great fish uh, pickled fish recipe that we wanted to maybe get his insight and process and maybe just talk a little bit about some of the differences with pickling fish. So I'd like to welcome uh, Chris Rothmeyer. Um, he's a member of our Eskimo staff to the podcast. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I know we uh, talked a little bit beforehand and been swapping some recipes back and forth, but uh, as we kind of maybe start talking about pickling fish and and your process, I mean, when people hear pickled fish, I'm sure most people automatically go to pike. Um, Is that typically what what you're looking at pickling when you're targeting uh, a good recipe? Yeah, that's usually what what I prefer to pickle. Um, When you look at the northern pike, um, a lot of it has to do with with the meat. You know, it's firm, it's flaky. You got big, big flakes when you pull it apart after it's either cooked or pickled. So, um, great texture for for a pickled fish. But uh, I know a lot of people that will pickle sunfish, bluegills, um, crappies. Some people pickle walleyes. Um, but but I find that northern pike uh, seems to work best for me. Pike, and, and I would echo that, Chris, because I've always had the best luck pickling pike as well. Um, although uh, the the Cisco, um, the the oily whitefish type fish sometimes can be pickled as well, and and they're they're okay. Yeah. Um, but I I would agree. I think pike is kind of our primary target there. And you know, when we talk about pickling fish, are we actually cooking it, or what are we doing to that? that fish filet or that meat, that chunk of meat that we want to preserve? Well, when we're, when we're pickling fish, we're not actually cooking it. Um, it's a process of uh, fermenting or preserving that uh, by method of a brine, you know, and typically that's with vinegar and salt. 
Um, so it, it involves soaking that, that filet or that meat in, in salt for a period of time um, to help preserve it so that it will last longer. Um, one, of the, one of the key things with, with fish in our region um, that I've found is I typically like to freeze my fish. You know, a lot of people are, are worried about any illnesses or parasites or anything in a filet, but if you freeze that fish, being that we're not cooking it, um, for a, for an extended period of time, um, most things that you will read will say a, a minimum of 48 hours. Um, then it kind of takes care of any of that parasites or any anything that might be in that fillet bacteria-wise that would uh, be detrimental to that. But uh, once you do that, you know we're not cooking it. it it's uh, my my biggest thing on on pickling fish is keeping it cool because it helps keep that that piece of meat firm and 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 you know inviting to eat. You know, Chris, um, going back to your comment there about freezing that filet before you pickle it, uh, that's something I have not ever done. And your rationale for it is is perfectly logical, and I think that's a really good sound practice to take. And, and quite honestly, I think I'm sitting here wondering if I dodged a bullet all these years, not uh, not coming down with something after I've taken those fresh fish and then put them right into the pickling process. It's always better to be <laughs> safe than sorry there. Yeah, you might you might have boosted your immune system a little, but uh, I like to you know play it on the safe side. It's just something that I came across when I first started uh, getting into pickling fish. I liked the taste. I just kind of wanted to try it on my own, and and that's one thing I came across to, uh, just to you know kind of double check and make sure that you don't have anything in there that could uh, could make you sick. I know there's a lot of recipes and a lot of great information out there online. And I know both of us, when we're looking for new recipes and different things, that's probably the, one of the first places I turn. But walk us through maybe your process on, you know, in addition to freezing the fish, um, your process for pickling it. And then maybe just, you know, we can get into some of the, the recipe stuff. Yeah. So like any great recipe, the best ones typically are handed down, whether it's from generation to generation or or through friends and and the one that I landed on that I liked the most actually I got from a coworker of mine um, and that uh, and that involves um, soak you know a salt soak so typically I'll go get some uh, pickling salt and I like to to do a, a decent sized batch at, you know you go through the work um, I'll wait until I get you know enough enough northerns to do a good sized batch and typically I'll I'll use a five gallon pail because um, when I do a salt brine you want to make sure that all of your fillet pieces are completely covered in that salt water and smaller bowls or pots might be a little harder to get everything, you know, covered as well. So my salt soak, you know, usually lasts about 72 hours. Now, if you look up different recipes online, there's different time frames for the different um, soaks that you do. So mine, mine is a salt soak for 72 hours. I drain that and then I do a vinegar, just a white vinegar soak for 48 hours and what that does is it really firms that filet up and the vinegar also helps dissolve and soften the bones um so like like we discussed earlier with pike a lot of people are shied away from from eating or frying pike because of the y bones that are in there with pickling a pike you don't have to worry so much about them because those bones will dissolve during the pickling process and give you a nice boneless piece of meat you know that was a question so i was i was just going to ask chris that and, and the first time i pickled some fish that was the biggest question in my mind was what's going to happen to all those bones? What's, what am I going to have to do? Do I have to fillet it? So all those bones are gone. And, and you just answered it. And then truly that is exactly what happens. You go through that process and, and you grab that, that chunk of, 
of pickled fish and there are no no hard bones you have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'll take my pike fillet first off and cut it up into bite-sized pieces before I do that salt soak and the vinegar soak so that they're already, um, you know, eating portion size. And that also helps with uh, dissolving the bones too. You don't have such a big chunk of meat to get through. Once you get done doing your soaks, um, your salt soak and your vinegar soak, I guess the next process is going to be the actual, I mean, adding the additional pieces or brine or the recipe that you have for pickling. Um, I know most people, they hear the word pickle, they think of dill pickles, but we're not actually, yeah. you know, flavoring them with the dill. There's a lot of different uh, varieties of spices and pickling spices that you can use, but um, what's maybe your recipe that you use? Yeah, so when once I'm done with my soaks, I'll make my brine, and that consists of vinegar, white sugar, and port wine. Um, and then to get that all infused together, typically you boil it so that it all dissolves in itself and this kind of circles back to the key in this whole process is to keep everything cool so i take my brine after it's boiled and everything is dissolved and i make sure i cool that down and while that's cooling then i'll I'll stuff my fish in into jars and you can add a variety of different items for flavors or textures or or different items that you want to pickle when you when you do these fish peppers onions bay leaves i know some people do green beans and carrot um kind of whatever whatever you want there and then you get all of your jars stuffed while that brine is cooling and then that brine will help transfer the flavors of the seasoning that you have chosen into that the meat so you'd fill your jars up with those pieces of fish uh, your onions vegetables whatever you care to add some people add peppers to give it a little bit of a spicy kick and then you typically cover that up with your brine seal it and put it in the fridge and then the best thing to do there is let that sit for a minimum of four to five days so that all those flavors will mesh and kind of infuse um together i am uh i'm ready to break out the crackers here and uh and and start diving into a jar of pickled pike this sounds delicious chris for our listeners great snack they are fantastic honestly and i'm looking at the recipe that i've used and 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 the one I've used, we actually have up on breweragreoutdoors.com, our, our, the website. Uh, and it's almost identical to, with just a few variations, but it's almost identical to the process you just described. And and knowing how that one turns out and knowing how good that is, uh, you know. And here's the thing. Anybody can do it. I did it yes. really with just the recipe and nobody like you guiding or kind of explaining the process. I just followed the the directions and and hoped it turned out. and. And lo and behold, it did. It turned out great. They're absolutely fantastic. Chris, what's your experience about, you know, uh, the, the sh- if you will, shelf life? Do you have to keep it refrigerated from that point on? Uh, how long do you expect that fish to stay uh, in good condition where it can be eaten? I typically like to keep it refrigerated the whole time. Um, you know, keeping it cool is key in my eyes because it keeps that fish fillet firm and it doesn't let it get slimy at all. And I usually try to eat that within six weeks for the best taste. Um, and, and that kind of corresponds with a lot of the different recipes I've found and tried online. That, uh, that six-week kind of, you know, kind of is, is the key to, to making sure it's fresh. And then, again, circling back to you don't want anybody getting sick eating, eating it. So I usually try to, try to um, you know, size my batches accordingly. If, uh, it's a great snack for get-togethers, 
Um, I tend to make it in the wintertime and bring it out into the fish house. Um, you bring a, a, a sleeve of crackers along and, and have some onions in there with the fish, and then there's nothing better for a, for a quick fish house snack. And then a quick beer after that to wash it all down. Yeah, it pairs very well with, with beer. That is, uh, again, my mouth is watering. I'm ready to, ready to dive into one of these jars of pickled fish here. And, and the sad thing is I don't have any in my refrigerator at home, so I'm going to have to make a point here one of these next outings to keep some fish just for that particular purpose. And guys, Anthony and Chris, I got to ask both of you because I, I did a little did a little background research for pickled fish, kind of where the, the history comes from, what it's about. And I, I found, or I should say I, I re-found something I had seen a number of years back. But wondering if you guys have ever heard of this stuff called surstroming. Nope, I don't think I have. I, no, no, okay. I have not. Well, it, it's it's not directly pickled fish, but it, it's a Swedish, lightly salted and fermented Baltic Sea herring. And and this goes back to like the 16th century. Go online, and our listeners, you got to do this. Go online and know that this is not the pickled fish we're talking about here. But this surstroming, it's, uh, it's called the Stinky Fish Challenge. And I guess when you open the can of this fermented canned fish, it's not pickled, not like we're talking about, but it's it's just similar origins in its process. Um, there's all sorts of videos online about people who do that, and it's a challenge to be able to, and it's it's edible and it's just fine, but the the aroma that comes off of that is just uh, um, is pretty wild, I guess. I've not I've not ever seen it in person myself, but you just go out there and watch some of those videos because they're they're pretty entertaining as you look at the, these people trying to, to get a bite of this stuff down. This sounds like something well, could, that happens after somebody's had maybe a few too many beers. It, yeah, it, it, I and can imagine of, that'd be very pungent. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. And anyway, it came up when I was searching some of the other stuff for pickled fish. So it's again, it's not the same stuff. I don't mean to turn anybody off to pickled fish because I absolutely love uh, the pickled fish that we've been talking about. But give it a search, give it a check out, and I, and I think it's worth a couple of minutes just uh, for a few of the laughs you're going to get. That's a great story, and I think uh, our listeners will hopefully be able to look past that and, and focus more on the on the deliciousness of the pickled pike that we were talking about. Uh, I know, Chris, you mentioned it's a great thing for bringing out into the shack and, and sharing with friends. I think it's a great thing if you end up making a big batch, sharing it with your buddies. It's probably a good bribing tool to maybe exchange it with some fresh fish fillets or maybe some some deer sticks or something like that. I know we've uh, we've done that in the past, but if anybody has any questions maybe on your recipe, um, you know, feel free to, you know, to reach out to Kyle or myself or, or Chris. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Um, I'm on Facebook, uh, just Chris Rothmeyer there. So you can either either message me through that or I know the Shack Talk is on Facebook as well. Um, check some of the posts there. I'll, I'll kind of pay attention to that if you have any questions or would like a copy of my recipe or directions on how to do that. I'd be more than happy to share Awesome. Yeah, we'll make sure to get that recipe posted up when we uh, get the episode live here for everyone to listen to. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you taking and spending a little bit of time with us uh, sharing your recipe. I know, as you said, the best recipes are typically handed down. So thanks for sharing with our listeners your recipe. And uh, we look forward to uh, talking to you again. And uh, thanks again for joining us. 
Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, guys. Uh, wish everyone uh, the best luck here as we go through the ice season. All right, everyone, stick around for our next segment. We're not going anywhere. We've uh, got a great segment talking about wheelhouse angling uh, with a good guest on our podcast here. So stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the next segment of Shack Talk. We are here in this episode, this segment of this episode, with uh, Randon Olson of Lockjaw Guide Service out of Ottertail, Minnesota. Randon, uh, great having you on Shack Talk. Happy to be on here. You are, um, you've recently taken the jump here within the last 12 months from uh, guiding as more of a part-time business. Um to where you've taken the plunge. You're, you're guiding 365 days a year, um, taking clients out seven days a week, um, taking calls, I'm guessing 24 hours a day, maybe not to that extreme. But to, I guess the point is you've taken that plunge. You are now a full-time fishing guide, and uh, that brings with it some some additional responsibility. It brings kind of some excitement as well, I have to imagine. A lot of excitement, a um, little nervousness, but that's to be expected with it all. But mostly a lot of excitement and looking forward to what I can do, you know, in the future. So the, the question you must get asked the most is, well, what's it like fishing for a living, right? Because that's what you do. You get to fish for a living. That is probably <laughs> the most asked question ever. And uh, it's, it, it doesn't feel like a job yet. I, the only time I felt like a job is when I don't have clients. Because I feel the necessity to find new spots and find new techniques. When I'm with clients, it's it's just like fishing with friends. It's it's a blast. That's a great philosophy and a great way to approach a guide business because truly you're creating memories for these folks and these clients. And those memories are certainly about catching fish, but it's also about spending time, telling stories, having fun in the boat, and, and creating an overall memorable experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you get in a boat with somebody and you'd be amazed how, how much stuff you actually have in common with a lot of different people, a lot of different aspects of life and everything. And the common denominator is fishing. That's it. Well, and that's a pretty cool common denominator, quite honestly. And, and it's certainly with all of us here in the, uh, in the room, that common denominator is why we're here, right? Doing what we do and, and each and every day. So we, we wanted to have you on random because one of the topics in our gear and equipment uh, uh, list was that we want to talk about wheelhouses. The popularity of wheelhouses has just gone through the roof over recent years. Um, before we, we kind of kick things off here, Anthony, you were talking about just how many different options there are in the wheelhouse world. There's so many different brands. I mean, I know everyone associates wheelhouses with the big brands, the ice castles, the glaciers, the yetis. There's just tons of possibilities and the uses continue to increase too because they started adding air conditioning units to these units so you can use them in the summertime as a camper and it's one of those investments that went from being something that you only use during the ice season ice fishing for a few months out of the year but now you're able to use that all year round and some of the accessories and things that we'll talk about in this segment are things that will help 
you know, you using that house even in the summer, different things that you can do to help make sure that you have everything that you need. And I think that's one of the big selling points for these fish houses now is it's not just a fish house. It's a camper and you're making an investment and it makes it a little more justifiable to your wife or spouse when you're looking to make one of these purchases. Totally agree. Totally agree. And Randon, you're capitalizing on that because uh, going into your first full ice season as a full-time fishing guide, you have um, brought in a fleet of four, is that four. correct? Four ice castles that you're going to be renting out to to clients, right? So you're going to provide lodging in addition to the, the opportunity to go fishing. And so knowing you as, as I do, you've spent the last weeks, probably months, preparing to accessorize these wheelhouses for your clients so that they're all ready to go here in another whatever it might be when you get to pull them out onto the ice. Yeah, and it, it it's honestly, it's been a lot of fun because the more you start accessorizing things, the more you start saying, well, I could do this and I could do that. And the more options open up, the farther you get into it. Um, and, and I think the opportunities are endless with that. Awesome. Let's start. Let's just talk first about equipping your wheelhouse for fishing. Just really the, the primary purpose of why, you know, why we're bringing it out on the ice, why we're going to use it. We buy it a fish house to go fishing, right? So what are some of the primary important accessories that uh, you feel are are important to uh, to make sure that are included in your fish house? One big thing is some kind of a set line. Is it a big deal with, with sitting in a, a wheelhouse in general is that you're kind of more relaxed out there. You get the heat on, you're a little more laid back. You know, you're not quite maybe as serious about jumping around as you would be in a portable. Um, you're more or less in kind of for the, the night to the long haul. So set lines are a great way to keep fishing while you're out there without being actively moving around and, and jumping hole to hole to hole. You can have your lines down while you're cooking a pizza or you know, talking to playing a card game right. or a board game watching with your a family. movie. Yeah, watching a movie, all those things. And yeah. when you talk about set lines, you're probably mainly talking about the rattle reels. That there's obviously a lot of options, but I would say that's probably the number one when people look to put set lines in their fish house that they're utilizing. Yeah, set uh, rattle reels are by far the number one used. Um, a lot of guys will use bobber rods and, and things like that, but rattle reels are by far the easiest and probably most productive ones because you don't mess with them. So now when you're setting up your rattle reels, is there a certain type of line that you like to use? I know I'm sure there's probably tons of options there too, but is there a certain time or type of line that you think has an advantage on a, on a set line or a rattle reel versus something else? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you can, you can try a whole bunch of different ways. I know guys have used braid, they've used Dacron, some guys have went straight monofilament on them. Um, I'm a big fan of the fly line, the floating fly line. It comes in bright colors. And the best part is it's very hard to tangle up. So when you're pulling that fish up out of the hole, you can dump the line on the floor next to you. You can step on it, move it around. You're not going to end up with a big rat's nest trying to get it back down. Um, one thing with that is that it is thick and it is brightly colored and stuff. So you want to make sure you run a long leader off of it of monofluorocarbon, whatever your choice is there. But I usually run like a 10-footer. That's like that. a great idea. That's a that's a really great idea. What, what's your personal recommendation? What... What rattle reels do you prefer or what, you know, you're equipping your own house here. What are you going to put in that? There's a lot of really great options out there and you can go as basic or as high tech as you want. Um, my fish houses are going to have the productive alternative rattle reels in it. 
Um, one of the main reasons we went with that is each spin of that rattle reel is one foot in depth. So if you don't have a flasher, you don't want to get one, you can tell about how deep you are, where you're at, that aspect. Plus, the rattles in them are really loud. They'll wake you up out of a sleep. Well, that's an important thing because I've seen there's some that have electronic notifications, um, more high tech, uh, and some are more the old school ones where there's actually a bell inside where that, that rattle or that bell is what makes the noise. And I'm assuming that's what these are. Yep. yep. Everybody, everybody knows that's fished in a sleeper house or an ice shack overnight is, you know, you want to be able to wake up in the middle of the night and enjoy the chaos of trying to figure out which <laughs> line is, which line is rattling, which bobber is down and who's the one that gets the lucky turn to step on the, you know, maybe the cold or wet floor and right. trying to figure out which, which fish this is. So I think that's really one of the things when people think about ice fishing in a permanent shack is spending that um, additional amount of time in the, in the ice castle or whatever it might be. You're spending the weekend out there more, you know, spending overnight or a long day in there. And so having some of those, options so you're not constantly just staring at a hole because it can get long if you're staring at a hole all day and you're not doing the run and gunning and you're getting that little bit of a break and so having those set lines like you said to be able to enjoy a few other amenities while you're fishing so, so a set line randon you know anthony you were right the primary means of a set line is is going to be your rattle reel but you can also take your ice rod reel combo and put it in a rod holder mm -hmm. right and so have that rod holder mounted near the hole and, and use that as your set line as an option is there an advantage one way or the other if, you, if you're a big rod and reel guy you're gonna have more fun with the rod and reel there's something kind of primitive almost about hand over handing a, a fish back you know you're the drag you're everything you're the rod um, there's definitely something to that that's kind of nostalgic and fun and all that wrapped up but but there's a lot of options out there with the rod and reel stuff you know with today's dead sticks um, there's a, a good amount of, of bait runner reels out there that have kind of a set in almost a rattle reel type inside the reel that allows, you know, that rod won't just double over and go down the hole. Um, it's kind of a personal preference when it comes to rods or rattle reels. And if you're setting a spinning reel in there, make sure you got the bail open because yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many times, I mean, personally myself, I've watched a rod go right down that hole and <laughs> that's gone forever, but bye bye. Yeah. So you know, there's a lot of different techniques that you can try. And I mean, I'm guilty of it too, is, you know, you sit in there and you pull your flasher and you're jigging and you're active. And so it's not limited to only set lines. You can be as active as you want to be, or you can be as relaxed as you want to be. Thinking back, we, we probably skipped over the first and almost most important step or, or process of fishing out of a wheelhouse. And that is making sure we can drill a hole in the ice, right? And and being in an enclosed area, I know the industry as a whole has moved extremely um, dramatically here in the last couple of years to to electric. Um, and even your alternatives like like propane to produce lower fumes. Uh, random thoughts or, or, or just ideas on auger preferences or auger considerations for that angler who might be a first-time wheelhouse owner. Yeah, definitely... You got to, electric is kind of the way to go with that. Um, the fumes aren't there. The smell's not in your fish house anymore. Um, propane is a great option. There's a lot less fumes. Um, you still have the fumes there. It's anything will work. Anything that cuts a hole will work. What I've been doing a lot of is, is ions or the pistols. And I find myself using the pistol a lot because of the fact that I can 
adjust the speed as I go. Um, if you got something like one of those catch cover buckets, you know, those are great for all augers. They're going to catch a lot of the stuff that comes out of the hole. You're not going to end up with it on your floor, but um, the electrics are seem to be a really good way to go. Any other tips that you have for someone when they're setting up their shack? I know the big thing is to try and make sure that you're keeping that ice, you're keeping that water off of your floor, and you're not having to try and melt that all day. Any other tips when you're setting up your house to to eliminate some of that besides like a catch bucket or something when you're when you're drilling your holes? Yeah, one thing, and and we should probably touch on it anyway, is is make sure you you block your house up, um, even if there's no snow out there. Lock it up because when you drill those holes, you're going to get water coming up and it's going to seep out. And, and that water on warmer days can circulate underneath that house and weaken the ice a little bit. But blocking your house up allows you to do a couple different things. A, it gets you off the, off the ice and leveled out with the snow and everything. And then it allows you to put some kind of a mat or I use pallets, um, put them in the front door of your fish house. You can wipe your feet off on them, kick most of the snow off. And then, uh, you know, just an outdoor rug from anywhere inside the house will catch a lot of that water. And I think it's fun too or convenient to drill your holes when your house is still kind of lifted off, whether it's on blocks or even still up on the wheels. It allows you to push that snow and slush out and you're not bringing it all into your house and then taking it all out. It, it's one of those things that I usually try to do is, you know, drill my holes when the house is still up, set it down, make sure everything lines up. But it's a, a really good advantage to anyone that's drilling holes in their house to to be able to keep all that water and ice off the floor. Yeah, for sure. Um, that can, feet get wet, that can ruin a trip quick. So what else can we do in your fish house? You got your holes drilled and different accessories that you're putting in there to make things a little bit more enjoyable. If, you know, say your floor is wet or different things. I know there's heaters and fans and furnaces and different things with the different types of models of houses that you have. But what what kind of other accessories are you putting in your houses to just make it that much more comfortable on the ice. One thing that you should have in your house is a pretty dang good supply of towels, just beach towels. That's great advice. They will go a long ways in wiping floors and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, little fish slime too, yeah, hopefully, right? Yep, yep. Hopefully. Um, hopefully that's the case. <laughs> that's probably one of the most overlooked tools out in the lake is, it, is just a towel that you're not afraid to get dirty. You know, one of the things I've been really um, surprised at, and it makes good sense, and that is so many of the folks that I talk to that own a wheelhouse, also inside of that wheelhouse, they're keeping a, a hub shack, like a pop-up type shelter. And you would think that, well, I've got my fish house, I don't need an additional shelter, but you see scenarios where that's an important part of their kind of plan of how they roll out the uh, weekend when they're out there to stay. It, it really is, you know, Thinking back when I was growing up, a really nice fish house was an 8x8 eight eight with paneling on the walls and a heater in the corner, you know, four holes. And and the way today's wheelhouses are, um, they're made, stay out there all weekend, stay out for a week, bring the family, enjoy it all. And, you know, you're going to do cooking out there. You're going to have to go to the bathroom at some point. You're going to have other things you want to do, and that's where those pop-ups can be really fun. Um, you set them up outside. You keep the smell outside. Um get bored one day, you, you've got the portable there. You can go explore if you want. You've already got your auger with you. And then you can just use it outside as a warming shack, a playhouse for the kids. Um, and a lot of people, they bring a lot of gear with them, and you don't want to keep all of that stuff inside the house with you. And so 
you know, say the wind is blowing and the snow is drifting, you can put your coolers in there. You can put your totes in there. You can use that hub shack for whatever you want. It's a great tool to have when you're out on the ice. I think a lot of people would be surprised how much they would actually use it. You roll up to somebody in a in a ice shack and they got all their gear sprawled out on the ice in front of the in front of the door. They got the coolers and their auger and everything and kind of keeping that into into a hub shack or something to, out of sight, out of mind keeps the honest people honest when they're driving around at night and you're not going to lose something either. Yeah. You're, you're very right about that. Just, uh, just being organized, keeping stuff clean, keeping it dry, keeping it away from the elements is an important piece of that whole picture as well. Yeah. Anything you can do to keep your gear in good shape and ready to roll when you're, you know, packing up and doing it, whatever you need to do throughout the day, whether that's moving to a different spot or trying something out, you're going to know exactly where everything's at. And I think, that's something that gets overlooked a lot too in a in an ice house is just being organized, having certain cabinets for certain things. You got your ice fishing stuff here, you got your food here, you got your dishes here, and towels that you mentioned in a different one. And not just having stuff sprawled all over and spending twenty minutes trying to find what you're looking for. Organized in general in fishing is overlooked. And the more organized you are when it comes to all of your equipment more successful you'll be and you'll have fun. Brandon, as a, as a guide, now you're approaching the season, you're going to have four of these wheelhouses out. You're going to have clients staying in them. Some, some, some weekends, I'm sure you're going to have all four of those booked up and full of guests. How do you go about staying organized? You, know, you mentioned this, the importance of staying organized. So how do you do that when you have that many people coming and going and using your equipment? So it's, I, I rely a lot on totes. And what I've got, at least for my run of fish houses is I've basically got two sets, extra set for each fish house of the silverware that's in there, the cooking utensils, um, all that stuff. And I've got it on my truck. So when I pull up to the house and, and the first group's checking out, I've got a couple hours to get the thing clean. I don't have to clean anything out there except wipe the counters down. I can swap everything back in. Um, keeping stuff, making sure, you, you know, you don't need to, to have a grocery store or a Walmart kept in your garage, but you should have a few extras, be ready, and things happen. Sometimes you go through a lot of paper towels in a weekend or something, you know, so um, just just being prepared for anything you can think of that might happen. Duct tape and zip ties, they'll go a long way too, I'm sure. And a big hammer. And a big hammer. (laughs) Great advice. The one other thing I had, Randon, and just a question about a wheelhouse, you don't plug it into an outlet, right? And you're out in the middle of the lake. You got to provide power to this thing. What? You know, a lot of people use generators. Any tips? Any advice on making sure that you're going to have a reliable power source there as you go out? Maybe on that weekend when it is blustery and blowing and and ten twenty below zero. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing with generators is make sure you size it to what you're going to be doing within your house. Um, a lot of these houses, most of the stuff is made to run off a battery. And your generator, more or less, might be running a TV and microwave and recharging the battery. You know, 2,000 watt will do that. But if you're going to be running a lot of stuff, kind of make sure you size that generator right for the house. Um, You had a great point with the dog kennel. Yeah, something that I've seen, and I actually learned this from Mike uh, from Fish Addictions, is take your generator, if it's really windy and the snow is drifting, Put your generator in a dog kennel. It could be a crate or anything that you have. It wouldn't have to necessarily be a dog kennel, but something that you can wrap with a tarp, but still going to allow the airflow into that dog kennel so it's not going to 
choke itself out, but it keeps that snow and everything from inside, getting inside the generator and plugging it up and freezing itself up. I think that's something that gets overlooked a lot. And being smart about how you position your fish house with the wind, you know, making sure that you're, you know, pointing it either into the wind a little bit so that it's not getting all drifted up by the door and having the door on the downwind side so that you open it every time the wind just doesn't blow in, being conscious of playing the wind, looking at some of that stuff can go a long way in making it that much more enjoyable and being able to bank your house appropriately. I think it's overlooked a lot. I mean, there's a lot of wind that can get in from underneath your house. And if it's blocked up, making sure that things are banked appropriately, even if you got to drill a couple extra holes outside, create some more slush or find the right amount of snow. I think just the wind in general you're sleeping in your ice castle or shack overnight and you don't want to wake up to it being cold. That's for sure. Right. One, one tip on, on banking your house up is when you drill your holes, a lot of these whole, whole sleeves that you can get anywhere from a lot of different places, um, drill your hole and stick that whole sleeve down into that slush before you clean your hole out. Once you get that stuck in the slush, then you can clean the inside of the hole out. And now you've got, the banking on the outside of the fish house, you've got banking around each hole and then the whole sleeve. So you're, you know, you're not letting that water seep out all over the place. The wind's not going to have a harder time getting into your holes to freeze them up. And um, that can save you, go a long way. Yeah. And I know those whole sleeves too, they always come long. So you got to yep. cut them down to size. So know what you're going to be banking your, or blocking your house with and how high you're going to be setting it so that you can cut your sleeves appropriate so that they're, you know, down to the ice or almost down to the ice so that you're getting that seal and keeping all the heat in so you're not having your furnace run all the time and being able to be a little bit more efficient out as well. I think that's a great tip. This is good stuff. Brandon, I know that you are, you're, you're always willing to help folks out if they have questions. You're always willing to give some tips and advice and uh, you're always willing to work with folks if you're available to get them out fishing with you through your guide service, Lockjaw Guide Service. How do we find you? There are a couple different ways. Um, you can look at my website, which is www.lockjawfishing.com. Um, check out my Facebook page, Lockjaw Guide Service, or you can just call me, which is call or text, either way, uh, 218-640-0158. Brandon, thanks for taking a few minutes and joining us on Shack Talk. Uh, some great information, some great tips today for folks. Thank you guys. A blast being on here. Folks, stick around. We've got more Shack Talk coming up. We're going to be right back after a real quick break. Welcome back, everybody, to our third and final segment of Shack Talk Podcast. And, and like we have been doing every week here for the for the podcast, we're going to dive into why do you like ice fishing? And we've got a really special guest on our podcast today, someone who spends a ton of time on the water, whether that's on the ice, in the open water. And he probably spends more time on the water without a fishing rod in his hand than most of us do. And and we're really curious to get his insight on what drives his passion and and why he really enjoys getting out there ice fishing. And so I'd like to welcome uh, Sam Moore to the podcast. He's a, a cameraman, videographer, photographer for Fish Addictions TV and a whole bunch of other uh, great uh, fishermen out on the ice, and he represents a lot of great brands. So welcome to the podcast, Sam. I appreciate it. That's, uh, that's, that's quite the introduction. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. I appreciate it very much. 
Yeah, it's uh, I know we probably don't need to name drop all the great anglers that you've spent time on the water with, but uh, maybe for our listeners, just uh, tell them a little bit about yourself and you know what really drives your passion for for spending a day out on the ice. Yeah, yeah, no, um, like I said, it's uh, I, I've been very fortunate uh, and very lucky in uh, in the, the short career I've had so far behind the camera to work with some really unique people, um, and uh, I can't say that it isn't necessarily probably one over the other, more or less, uh, as you know, it's building memories and those stories that you remember um, when you're out doing those things, things with, you know, other different people or whatnot. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm a kind of full-time content creator. I own a production company that, uh, that dabbles with both photo and video. Um, again, like I said, I've been thankful not to be very busy in the short amount of time I'm working for myself. So I've got to do some pretty cool trips with some pretty unique people. But the bottom line is uh, I try to make a path or a career for myself that involved me uh, at least for the most part, as long as I'm working, still being surrounded by good people and uh, in a good situation, rather than be on the lake or in the woods. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been a heck of a of a, a year or two. Um, I did pretty much the same thing I'm doing now for a specific company uh, right out of college, and I got a ton of experience doing that. Um, and then eventually, just realized that uh, the lifestyle and kind of the where I wanted to go um, and what I want to have for a career was going to be uh, doing the same thing but working for myself, which does a lot of things, right? It opens up different doors uh, for you to kind of choose who you want to work with and a variety of, of, of brands and both open water and ice fishing and some hunting stuff too. So it's been a blast. And uh, like I said, I, I can't tell you how fortunate I am to be surrounded by by good people. You know, Sam, uh, what you do in, in content creating and photos and video editing and all of these things, there's, there's individuals in that profession who do that in just about every industry in imaginable to us. Um, going back, maybe before you, you took that career path, w- was there something that, that kind of drove you to that outdoor ice fishing, open water fishing um, aspect of, of what you do that, that really is important to, you know, who you are and where you want to go? Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. Um, and in fact, uh, when we talked before we got on, got on here, um, you mentioned something like that. That was going to be a question. I immediately started thinking, I don't think I have uh, an amazing heritage story that I think a lot of people will, uh, I mean, the huge part will say, you know, my, your father, right? Uh, or a grandfather that got him into an uncle, someone who uh, really gave them a lead into a passion for the outdoors. Now, my father was has been outdoorsman his entire life. Um, he's a different kind of outdoorsman in terms of the fact that he, uh, doesn't as much have a drive to uh, to conquer fish and as much of a competitiveness into to figure him out and to, to get him patterned, more or less simply enjoying being where he is. Uh, and that's something that uh, is a part that I've absolutely gained from him and I, I can give him credit to, but I really didn't, didn't really get into it uh, at the level that lots of, you know, it's hard to get obsessed and, and, and start thinking about, you know, how they can truly conquer a species or a certain bite or get after a certain thing until I was probably a young, young adult, you know, end of high school and a college. Um, I had a friend that uh, kind of got me sick to it. You know, I just uh, couldn't stop thinking about fishing, anything from tournament bass fishing to, you know, really getting after trying to find unique bites through the ice. So uh, my dad definitely was the one who, who introduced me to the outdoors. Uh, but I mean, up until, <coughs> excuse me, up until I was uh, probably early teens or a late teens, I should say, and an early adult. I really didn't have a crazy drive to like get after it. So eventually uh, I think going to school in an area that, oh geez, was just, I mean, God's country, phenomenal for anything you want to do and get pretty serious into the outdoors, whether that be ice fishing, open water, bass fishing, you know, archery, honey, waterfall, whatever it may be. Um, it really gave me an avenue to try and excel quickly and figure stuff out uh, and kind of carve your own route. Right. So um, 
I guess that's that's really when I started getting getting really passionate about it is when I when I was able to have an old vehicle, you know, you buy an old boat, you fix it up, and then you start really kind of self-teaching yourself how to uh, conquer a specific uh, side of, of a sport like like ice fishing or, or open water fishing. You know, Sam, that is a great story. I love hearing that because that's what makes the segment about why do you ice fish? Why do you love ice fishing? That's what makes it, that's what drove Anthony and I to do this segment on each of our podcasts is that we all have a different story. And, you know, listening to you, one of the things that I really appreciate is is hearing about your dad's level of appreciation awareness for where he's at and not needing it to be, you know, a, a particular totally. goal to make the day a success. And and I think for a totally. lot of us, sometimes we need to slow ourselves down and, and really figure that out for ourselves as well. Just just about every time that I that I have the opportunity to still fish with my dad, which is not as much as I'd like to. Um, but in fact, I was on um, Mystic River uh, literally like a day or two ago. And my dad loves smallmouth fishing. And, and I love smallmouth fishing. And I heard it's like probably the thing I get most excited about. But uh, we were uh, we were fishing and I was doing some filming, half working, brought a rod with me, you know, that kind of thing. I fished the way back down the river. And uh, I was sitting down and I was thinking, you know, regardless of, of what, how many fish were catching or anything like that, my dad would love this because the scenery, the way it's set up, and it was a really unique situation. It was a small body of water. We were making small, unique casts and catching a bunch of really active little smallmouth. Again, not about the size, not about a giant fish picture. It was just a really unique setting. And the entire time I'm thinking my dad would love this. And so just as soon as I got out, I was, uh, I gave a call. to like, listen, we need to go do this. Just because I know you would appreciate it for what it is. And unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, I was given some kind of drive uh, to, to always kind of be a little more competitive than that. And it takes simple moments like that uh, to help me kind of reflect. And that's not really what it's about. Um, I think like you, you hit on the nail. Guys can get lost in the success or failure, or um, the worthiness of a trip in its success or failure. You know, um, people don't think you can have a phenomenal trip and a great day in the water and not catch that many fish and or big fish. And um, that's just a mindset that you we'd be better off to appreciate uh, as outdoorsmen for sure. Yeah, there's definitely an evolution to every angler, and I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I'd much rather spend the day out in the ice with people that I enjoy spending time with and not catch any fish than spend a day out there by myself and, and really crush the fish. So there's a lot to be said about just enjoying your time out on the ice or the water um, with with those people that are around you. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know that everyone has their own um, their own desires of, of, of from self-accomplishment when they're fishing or fishing by themselves to a group mentality. I mean, uh, it's, it's different every atmosphere you go to. And I'm kind of all over the board. I I don't think I have an appreciation for one versus the other. I, I typically am not the guy who goes with a bunch of friends, more of a social gathering. You know, you have a beer or two and you sit down an ice shack. That's not typically my scene, but it doesn't mean you can't appreciate it for, for exactly what it is and, and however how many times it happens a year. Um, Kyle, you mentioned earlier that, like, we talked about what was your first kind of introduction to ice specifically. Because um, I know I've been talking about, you know, open water ice and general outdoors as, as a whole. Um, I was thinking earlier that, in terms of ice, I mentioned where I went to college was unique. One of the things that really propelled uh, an interest and almost uh, an infatuation with ice fishing specifically is the access to really remote um, hike-in slash snowmobile in. I didn't have a snowmobile at the time, but uh, little lakes that uh, you could be in the middle of nowhere on a, on, a, on a piece of property that you know, or, or a lake that you know gets uh, zero, if, if anything, very little pressure. You could figure out a bite and be catching giant in my case it was always panfish I, I i never was much of a walleye guy 
a giant panfish, and I would sit back and I'd giggle because I was the only one there. And you're in the middle of nowhere, and regardless if it's a chunk in a state land or a private lake or a bite that no one else knows about, and there was something about an appreciation of being the only one there and figuring a little, you know, secret out. It's like you had a key to a to a to a magical closet somewhere. You, you you're the only one that had it. You you were the only one that could, could figure it out and execute it. And you sit there and you get to see that reward. And that was that was really what kind of gave me the drive to continue to find those little lakes and find those unique bites. And I would always prefer that over something where uh, it's like uh, you know you go to a, a, a one house that's between 50 other houses um, and you're still catching the same fish, but like it's it was the remoteness and like the it was just it was self rewarding. It was that was what got me absolutely hooked i was a freshman in college and like i mean i i switched like i was a diehard for four years when i was up in, in college and it was that's what got me hooked it was amazing it's really fun listening to you kind of talk about you know what really hooked you into to fishing and you know, your drive and your passion for that and you know i myself can appreciate that i've been on those same bites and and it's one of those things that it's really hard to forget uh, those amazing days out on the ice as Absolutely. you kind of look towards, you know, how you spend most of your time on the water now, I mean, do you ever find yourself with a, a camera in your hand wishing that you had a fishing rod in your hand? Of course, always. Um, I mean, like there's, and that's, I think that's one thing that uh, is probably the most common themed question and or kind of side comment or joke um, when, uh, when, I, when I do the work that I do, regardless if it's hunting, fishing, ice, is like the people look at me like, man, doesn't this drive you crazy? Because typically when you're filming it, I mean, you, you have some kind of advance on, on where you're going or what you're doing. And, and, uh, and usually, I mean, I've been thankful enough to be in the uh, film, some pretty good bites. Uh, to answer your question, Anthony, it was, it's different. You know, um, when I, I, I learned pretty quickly, especially when I started doing it more for a profession, more than just a hobby that I wasn't able to do both. Well, in fact, I try and dabble with doing some self-filming stuff and it's actually very difficult for me because I'm in almost, I'm in one, one mode or the other. Uh, I, can truthfully say that if we're on a school of 14 or 15 inch crappies and uh, which Anthony, you and I have been filming on a fishing episode during this situation, I equally enjoy running around like a chick with my head cut off, freaking out and giggling like crazy because everyone around me is just crushing giant fish and I'm getting stupid, like silky footage. I, I enjoy that as much as if I was one of those guys wetting the line and catching a fish. Um, and, and I don't really know how to explain that other than the fact that um, there's a different side of my brain that it, it gets equally excited about uh, capturing a moment like that. And then knowing that like you captured it the right way and you executed everything the right way. Um, and you guys can both relate to this. I'll try and get an analogy for you. You know how um, there's so many variables in fishing. In fact, any, any person will tell you an addiction to a sport or a profession like that, a lot of it has to do with that there's depth to the sport. Uh, fishing, there's so many variables that you a successful angler there's some tools that are more important than others but uh the reason there's a fishing industry and there's a demand for so many different rods reels baits plastics accessories is because everyone has an idea of how to finally execute a specific plan to their wants and desires right so like that's what makes it cool like you can you know that i'm going to use this rod and this this pan and i think this bait and this color there's so many finer details well when i'm shooting let's say a bite like that like a like a, a crappie frenzy where everyone's just crushing or pampers going off ever or walleyes whatever it may be there's a million variables on how to capture a moment like that. And uh, to be able to pull everything off and, uh, and capture it well with the, the million variables that go into shooting behind a, a, you know, a video camera, rather it be your quality, your exposure, how you capture it from the audio to your different lenses, there's an equal amount of variables. And so to, to, to pull off, when you're in the middle of something like that in a frenzy, 
and to try and pull it off and, and execute it well. And while you're doing it, you know what you're capturing is like awesome and everyone's excited and it's going to be amazing content. That itself uh, is why I do what I do. And so that I get an equal amount, sometimes more of excitement out of that than if I was the guy behind the rod catching a fish. There's definitely a lot of preparation that goes into both and I can appreciate your passion and the amount of work that you do in both aspects, whether that's fishing and filming, because, you know, myself, I've done the same. I know Kyle, you've picked up a camera a time or two and, and it's not easy. No, oh, no. And, and you have to commit almost. I mean, it's like, it's like I said, it's hard to dabble with both. If you're thinking about fishing and you're like almost like wishing you were fishing, it's hard to get disciplined on the camera side. And if you're in camera mode, like the last thing you're thinking about is like wetting a line. Cause it's just like, you ha- it's almost, at least for me and my personality, it's a, it's a switch. I have to be doing one or the other. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, Sam, that you're not just dealing with that. You're also in your mind picking out video footage versus still photo footage and doing both of those oh, yeah. very deep subjects as well. Yeah, it's um, and Anthony can probably attest to this. There's uh, there's a balance um, when it comes to uh, an equal amount of content, and without going into crazy stuff about like camera gear and stuff, but like to try and capture a thing, right? So you got um, we've had several times, and again, Anthony's been on these shoots where um, everything happens in an hour. Uh, you know, we had a shoot last year where it seemed like we had fish going off every two seconds. Someone's going around, and you have a guy. Even if you have two guys, sometimes we get some help in that on the, uh, the fish addiction shoots as well as another camera guy, it's mayhem. And so to be able to, to log what you're doing and that you're getting enough of a dynamic of a source of content, regardless if it's hero, awesome shots, people smile with big fish of a wide lens or hook sets from a distance to drone footage. And you fly a drone and you can't be filming on a big camera and flying a drone at the same time. You don't have enough hands, right? So you get a balance of everything and to execute everything at an even level and know like, all right, I got enough of this kind of footage and then go to the next one, then go to the next one. And then like you mentioned, mixing stills into the whole idea because we want to we want to document this past just what we do for an episode for video. We want to get pictures of it and be able to share with our, our following on social. And like it's it's uh it's it's mayhem. It's equal as amount of mayhem as if when you're a fisherman, and you're like I got to tie a bait on now. I got to retire because I got a nick in my life. Like it's just it's a different kind of mayhem. And I think part of it, part of that mayhem is like is what I enjoy. Um, it's just on you know behind the camera instead of in front of it. Wow, that's just that's just plain amazing. <laughs> as I'm sitting here listening to you. Sam, what what are your hopes? Because you're a you're a young guy here, and and you're just opening up the doors to your career. What are your hopes in terms of where you want to go with with the the content creation, and where you want to go with the outdoors yeah. and the filming and all that stuff? Yeah, it's um it's a great question. Um, again, one you could spend hours hours talking about. Uh, in my line of work, uh, it's very easy, um, and it happens, and I've seen it before for people to get burned out. Uh, and the reason is if you can picture like an artist or paint a song, you know, who's painting a picture, um, you can't force them to think of something, right? There's certain things in our line of work that you can just get behind the camera, make sure it's set up right and just roll. And then there's certain things in the work that separate you from other people that do the same thing you do. Um, and that's all that's in your head and, and then, and your work ethic to execute such vision. So for me, you talk about a goal. Um, I've uh, like, I've been very fortunate since I've been working for myself. I haven't really had to make like a highlight reel or a website to sell myself. I've, I've built some really good relationships with some really good people. Um, and I have just built on that. And so eventually um, I will continue to refine the people I work with and work with people who I just really enjoy working with the projects that I really value and then give myself as much time to be able to sit back 
and really create something special. Um, because uh, in, in my line of work, uh, there's something to be said about quality over quantity. Um, quantity is needed sometimes, don't get me wrong, and there's, there's spots and, and situations for that. Uh, but quality is really what ends up being the most fulfilling and the most rewarding. And so that's, that's my goal, uh, just to continue to, I will, I will never, uh, never stop shooting. Um, my goal isn't to work uh, my whole life, believe it, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, I have, uh, as Anthony knows, I'm a, I'm a, I, we work for yourself, you're a guy in many hats. And so I got all kinds of things outside of fishing industry, outside of filming um, that I'm working on so that I can just continue to hand select the projects that are the only ones that I, want, I really want to work on. And uh, if I can do that uh, while uh, raise an amazing family and keep my wife happy, uh, I'm sold. I, I'm, I don't need anything. But that's, that's, that's the goal for me. When you find out that formula and that secret, will you let us know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Balance is everything, man. I mean, I, Anthony knows I, uh, I worked way too much last year, way too much. And uh, so this year, I'm, you know, I'm trying to tone it back a little bit. And uh, every year, just do that more and more and, and get more time. And uh, balance is everything. I mean, you guys are sitting here where, what is this, uh, some six, seven o'clock in the evening, there's something you're doing above and beyond what you do for your main line of work. You understand, you, you, regardless of how in-depth or, or how deep you are in something like that, um, there will always be situations that are presented to yourself to give you more opportunity to grow and to achieve your goals. And uh, I just don't see anything stopping in the foreseeable future, you know, God willing. Yeah, you definitely have to work hard and play hard. And I really enjoy spending, you know, time out on the on the water and in order to, you know, give myself the opportunity and the time to do that. It's definitely something that you have to log those hours and, and uh, you know, make sure that you're providing for yourself and, and your family and being able to, you know, use that extra time that you've earned and, uh, and enjoying it out on the ice. 100%. That's what it's about, for sure. Sam, I, I really appreciate you taking some time to visit with us and share a little bit about yourself and your passions and what you do. Folks that are listening to the yeah, podcast, absolutely. How, how can they see your work? How can they follow you? How can they um, gain that same appreciation for what you do that Anthony and I have? <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, pretty much, uh, again, for better or for worse, uh, my life, what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis is, uh, is portrayed over social media. Um, and there's advantages and disadvantages to that. Unfortunately, uh, in my line of work, um, it's almost a must. Uh, but there's definitely, like I, I say that, like, like, like I'm a slave to it. There's definitely parts of it I enjoy, and I'm choosing to do so. So anything on social, I'm probably most active on Instagram um, and, uh, and probably second most on YouTube. Um, I don't dabble as much as Facebook as I should just because uh, I feel like my generation is uh, slowly using Facebook less. But... Um, at the same time, it's a lot of it's the same kind of content. So um, definitely social. Um, I mean, do you want me to like list like a, like a, like a handle, Instagram handle, that kind of thing? Sure, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, go ahead and share that if you don't yeah, mind. It's, it's just uh, yeah, it's just Sam Moore fishing, um, and more is with uh, with two O's. Um, but yeah, I, I most of what I do on a given day, the traveling that I do, um, the the projects that I'm working on, um, depending on after the client shares it or like for example, a fish fiction episode after we air the thing. We'll be putting out all kinds of content from those trips. And that's uh, because, again, I'm thankful to be traveling around the country and doing all kinds of stuff. There's quite a diversity and quite a flow of content going uh, through my socials, which is a lot of fun. I get a lot of really, really uh, unique uh, feedback on that, which is just awesome. It's really cool to see people reach out to you, like, you know, from somewhere in Nebraska and be like, hey, dude, I've been following you for like a year or two. You're killing it. Keep it going. Like, that's like the coolest and most rewarding feeling in the world. I, I, unbelievable. Well, I would recommend all the listeners of Shack Talk go out and check it out. Check out your work. Check out what you've been up to because uh, 
it's it's great it's it's entertaining it's fun it's it's truly a work of art so uh, again sam thank you for taking some time and joining us absolutely thank you for having me guys i, I really appreciate it folks uh that's going to conclude things for this episode of shack talk we want to say a, a big thank you to eskimo ice fishing gear get eskimo.com follow them on facebook and instagram they make shack talk possible and hey, we love, just as a reminder, we love hearing from our listeners. Send us those messages. Send us those uh, bits of feedback, uh, things you want to hear on future episodes of Shack Talk. You can follow Anthony uh, on his social media venues as as well, uh, Facebook and Instagram. And of course, on Fish Addictions TV and, and their um, different aspects they have out there on, on the media world. You can follow me, uh, Kyle Agri, at... Uh, at my social media, both personal and at Brewer Agri Outdoors. Um, we love it. We're, we're just, uh, you know, this comes to a close, and we're always always just uh, anxious to, for the next one to start. So until then, uh, be safe, get out there, and good fishing. 